For those of you who may not know me, my name is Becky Fry, and I'm the administrative director here and a member of our preaching team. For the past six weeks, we've been in a series called Vices, where we are looking at the sins in our lives that have a real hold on us and are difficult to uproot. And while the topic of cardinal vices, or the seven deadly sins as they're also known, doesn't seem very, you know, Christmassy, it actually points us back to the reason that Jesus came to earth as a baby. He knew we needed rescuing from our sins, and his birth, eventual death, and resurrection was all part of God's greater rescue plan for us. And as an added bonus, I love when our sermon series creates conversations with my family. And vices has definitely gotten us talking. So far in this series, we have tackled pride, envy, vainglory, greed, lust, and sloth, also known apparently as acedia. And last week's sloth message was definitely not what I had thought sloth was, and I'm still processing it. So thank you, Pastor Jimmy, for leading us through the vices for the past six weeks. I hope that this series has caused, has caused similar conversations in your life with your friends and your family and your life groups. Throughout this series, our goal has never been to shame anyone for the sins that we struggle with, but to give space for the Holy Spirit to convict us, challenge us, and guide us in uprooting these vices from our lives. As I discussed this week's topic with my husband, Joe, he got this look in his eye and this kind of smile on his face, and he was just like, um, are you going to tell any personal stories? And as he sat there, I could see him start to think through specific instances where today's topic was readily obvious within my life. And yes, I am going to tell a few stories, but before I do, I want to spend some time really understanding today's vice. Today, we get to talk about the vice of anger, also known as the vice of wrath. And I'm guessing that I'm probably not the only person here who has stories about anger. And please don't start nudging the person next to you going, yeah, what about yours? Let's dive in to what anger or wrath is. To start with, anger is a God-given emotion. It can be expressed in a multitude of ways. When I first started counseling about five years ago, anger was one of the few emotions that I could identify. At the time, I felt like I was always angry at either someone or something that was going on in my life. To help me understand my different emotions, my counselor used an emotion wheel to help put into words what I was feeling. And I think it could be a helpful tool for us today as well. If you're gonna look at the screen, the section in purple is all about anger and the different words that we can use to describe it. Anger can be described as mad and aggressive, which is maybe the typical image that we think of when we think about anger, people flipping their lid or completely freaking out on you. But anger can also be described as numb and withdrawn, where we kind of pull away from other people and kind of turn in on ourselves and go, eh, who cares? Anger can be furious and resentful. It can hold on to hurts and grudges and wishing revenge on other people. 
anger can also come across as critical or bitter, never being able to be pleased by anything or full of sarcastic and biting so-called jokes. Anger, regardless of the form that it takes, is a secondary emotion, meaning that it acts more like a warning light for us. It's a clue to look deeper at what is going on inside of us. Now, I don't know much about cars at all, but one thing I do know is that when your car's check engine light goes on, it means that there's something wrong inside the car that I can't see. It's not gonna go off if I just ding my bumper or I have a cracked taillight. And it could point to just a simple problem like needing to tighten your gas cap, or it could mean that there's something greater going on with the belts or wires or engine or whatever car stuff goes wrong. Just like ignoring a car's engine light by turning up the music or putting a sticky note on it is bad for your car, ignoring anger as our warning light in our lives is also bad for us. Now the Bible talks a lot about anger and throughout the book of Proverbs, which my daughter Brianna read for some excerpts from this morning, it describes anger this way. A great foolishness, harsh words that make tempers flare, anger starts fights, a gossiping tongue causes anger, and anger is constantly needing to pay a penalty and to be rescued again and again. Throughout the Bible, we are given warnings about our anger. In Ephesians 4, in the NIV, it tells us, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not get the, give the devil a foothold. Or in the NLT, it translates it this way, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Anger gives the devil a foothold into our lives, meaning that we give up control of ourselves to our anger, and we react in ways that God never intended for us and that are hard to undo. We are told in Colossians 3 that now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. And in Galatians 5, it tells us, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. You notice how many of those words within that section point back to anger or to one of the other vices that we've already talked about this series? So does this mean that every time we get angry, we sin? No, it doesn't. But as we're going to see, most, if not all of our anger, tends and could be classified as a vice. Now remember, throughout this series, we have described a vice as a disordered desire that is contrary to God's original design. Going back to the beginning of the Ephesians verse, it says, in your anger, 
do not sin. Implying that there is a way to be angry that isn't sinning. In the book of James, he tells us, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires, creating a distinction between God's righteous anger and our human anger. The Bible is very clear that God gets angry, as people love to point out every time we read the Old Testament. Psalm 711 tells us, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. In Romans 1, it says, But God shows his anger, also translated wrath of God, from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We know and believe that God has not and cannot sin. And since the Bible shows us that God gets angry, there has to be a way to get angry without sinning. If we continued reading all the verses in the Bible about anger, and don't worry, I'm not going to, we would discover that God's anger is always focused on justice. Throughout the Bible, justice is always about making things right and restoring relationships. And I think that we would all agree that being angry at injustice and fighting for what is right is what we want too. Where our anger goes wrong and turns into a vice is when it distorts our desire for justice and it becomes self-focused and about revenge. How we define justice though matters here. A simple definition I found online says, justice is a concept of moral rightness based on ethics, rationality, law, natural law, religion, or equity. Okay, but whose ethics? Whose religion? Whose law? When we come at this from our own perspective, we end up twisting justice into being what we think is right and what we want, not just according to the standards that God has set forth for us. We react to perceived injustice happening to us instead of the real injustice that is occurring every day. To help us flesh this out a bit more, let's look at two questions that we can ask to see if we have good or righteous anger or if it is distorted and sinful anger. So our first question is what are we angry about? Simple, right? And the second is, how is our anger expressed? Let's start with the first one. What are we angry about? Or put another way, what is the target of our anger? Looking at the target of our anger often tells us more about what's going on inside of our souls rather than what is actually happening in front of us. Remember, our anger is a warning light that is supposed to be pointing us deeper. So let's go a little bit deeper and make this less theoretical and more practical. As I go through some examples of anger, I want you to be looking for two things. What is anger's target? And what is the root underneath the anger? And these examples are unfortunately not hypothetical situations, but real stories from my life 
because at Crossbridge, we value relational transparency. So, this particular scenario happened quite frequently in my house. I have four children. They are now nine through 17. And trying to get them up, dressed, fed, and out the door often seemed like a Herculean task, especially when they were young. There were tears and demands and threats and raised voices, and that was all just from me. As I tried to get them into their car seats and out the door so that we showed up on time, no matter where we were going, whether it was to church or to school or even just a friend's house for a play date. So in this scenario, what is the target of my anger? And I actually do want you to shout out some responses. What's the target of my anger in this story? You know what it is. Just say it. My kids, yes. My kids and also I would say not wanting to be late. Those are the two things I was getting angry at. But I wasn't really angry at my kids. They just unfortunately bore the brunt of what I wasn't dealing with inside of me. And since we can't know another person's inner motives and we should never try to guess what they are, let me tell you what was going on underneath. And I just want to clarify that I didn't realize any of the stuff going on underneath at the time that this was happening. But I was able to discover what was happening through spending lots of time with Jesus and lots of time talking to my counselor. Underneath my anger in this scenario, I was worried about what other people thought of me. I was struggling with a false self and the lie that if I didn't show up on time and prove that I was a good mom, people were going to think less of me and not like me. Rebecca DeYoung states it this way in Glittering Vices. Wrath arises when we defend the false self at all costs. The false self is our cherished picture of ourselves, propped up by pride. While I was trying to defend my false self, what was really going on underneath was worry and people-pleasing as I tried to protect my false self and the lies that I believed. All right, let's look at another example. How many of you, have you ever taken a long car ride with children? Whether they were your kids or not, or maybe you were the, the kid in the car, but you guys have been there with me, right? You've taken a long car ride. All right. So in this particular situation, it has been several hours that we've been driving. The kids are starting to get hungry. All the snacks that I packed ahead of time have already been eaten. And the parents my husband and I, in this case, we can see the proverbial finish line. We're like, we just have to push through to get home. But on this fateful trip, the whining won out, and we pulled over to Moe's to get some food, which they then refused to eat. Mm -hmm. We packed everything into the to-go containers, 
and we shuffled everyone back out into the car for the rest of the drive home. And as we pull out of the parking space, and I start to drive in the parking lot still, all of about, you know, five seconds has passed at this point. One of my children, and I honestly don't remember which one said it. If you want to cop to it now, feel free. Um, but I hear from the back of the car, I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. Other parents have been there with me. I slam on the brakes. I pick up a container of their food. And as it flies through the car at them, I scream something along the lines of, then eat your damn chips! Joe, who's sitting next to me in the passenger side, <laughs> gently looks over and goes, are you okay? To which he gets a, I'm fine. I wasn't fine. And we drive the rest of the car ride home in silence. Anybody want to take a guess at who the anger was directed at in this fun family story? A PJ. Okay, so we've got some guesses that it was PJ, my eldest. I am not saying whether that's correct or not. I don't remember. But yes, my anger was definitely once again directed at my kids with honestly a good healthy dose thrown at Joe when he asked if I was okay. Joe used to joke that he didn't know I could get angry until we had children. But what I didn't understand until recently is that this story isn't really about me getting angry at my kids or even them refusing to eat their food. It was about boundaries and not feeling like I could say no because I didn't want my kids to be upset with me. I didn't know what healthy boundaries looked like at the time, but man, I sure got angry every time I felt like one of them was trampled. What was underneath was people-pleasing, once again, a lack of healthy boundaries, and still struggling with my false self and the lies that I believed. And yes, it was frustrating that my kids didn't eat what we bought them. But the anger was my warning light. It should have pointed me to go deeper. You see, sinful anger is always about me. My agenda, my plans, my control, my expectations. And when things don't work out the way that I think they should, the biblical idea of justice becomes perverted and twisted into revenge or self-seeking behaviors. I like how it says it in the book of in the book Killjoys. Sinful anger therefore is inherently stupid. It happens when we misperceive reality as unacceptable and when we are so blinded by our self-consumed loves that we want to annihilate anything that doesn't serve us. Sinful anger happens when, instead of imitating God, we try to play God by assuming the right to draw lines, 
defining what should or should not be. The right target for our anger is always injustice and sin and never other people. Again, in Glittering Vices, DeYoung says, anger can be properly directed at only our own sin and perhaps the evil demons that incite us to it. Never at a human being. Love of neighbor precludes anger targeted directly at another person. When we make people the target of our anger, it dehumanizes the person. It makes them an object to be angry at and not a person worthy of our love and respect. In order to pursue righteous anger, we need to love people well and redirect our anger onto the correct target. So, let's say we manage to actually have the right target for our anger. We still have to talk about the second question. How is our anger expressed? And this also needs to be answered correctly for us to, to not fall into sinful anger. The vice of anger often gets the how of anger wrong in three ways. In proportion, in timing, and in duration. Our anger is often not in the correct proportion to the offense or perceived offense. Our anger can be too great, like when we get cut off on the highway or we are stuck behind the slow driver and they're not going to turn. We get furious. It's a small offense that often has a huge verbal and or physical reaction to the other driver. But our anger can also be too little, like when we're apathetic about things like human trafficking or modern-day slavery. We should be furious about people who are made in the image of God are being treated wrongly. And yet we just go, eh. And we scroll past on our phone the ad that had popped up where we changed the channel. Is the proportion of our anger appropriate for the offense? The timing of our anger can also easily be wrong. And this is all about how fast and slow we are to respond. Sometimes we do find ourselves getting angry too easily. And we find ourselves quick-tempered, always irritated with a short fuse where anything can set us off at any time. James 1 tells us, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. So how quickly are you getting angry? And while it is good to be slow to anger, James just told us to be, how slow are you? Are you so slow that your anger never actually materializes for the things that we should be angry about? Are you so used to maybe numbing out when angry that we miss the moments when anger is the appropriate response? Not ever getting angry isn't a sign of piety. 
Because there are things worth getting angry about. God gets angry at things. So our check engine light can come on when we're too fast and when we stop caring about the injustice around us and we don't respond at all. So is our timing appropriate for the offense? And finally, the duration of our anger can be wrong. We can stay angry too long, ruminating on past hurts and things that people have done to us, nursing those offenses in our minds. This usually tends to bubble over into passive-aggressive behavior, refusing to forgive people, dreaming about the perfect comeback, you know, or put down, or focusing on vengeance instead of reconciliation. Our anger will then tend to constantly be leaking from us well after the initiating event has passed. This is not only harmful to those around us, but to ourselves as well. Or maybe we don't dwell on our anger. We just say, I'm not angry. I'm not angry about that. And we just pretend that we're not angry or we shove it down deep enough that we don't even see it anymore. And we don't deal with our actual anger. But stuffing it down doesn't make it go away. And pretending that we're not angry can also be harmful to us. We can suffer mentally with increased anxiety and stress and restless thoughts that won't stop. We can suffer physically from stuffing down our anger with ulcers or stomach pain or increase, increasing our blood pressure so that it's high. We can suffer emotionally with strained relationships or a lack of transparency until one day, boom, we just explode on all the people around us, often who had nothing to do with what we were actually angry about. God's anger, biblical anger, wants to right the wrongs in the world and fix the brokenness. It wants to restore relationships and bring people back to the way God originally intended it to be. God gets angry throughout the Bible when the people break his commandments, when the people are unfaithful to him and to each other, and when we fail to trust him. The target of God's anger is always correct. How God gets angry is also our model to follow as we take steps in our faith to grow closer to him and know him better. God is consistently described in the Bible as being loving and slow to anger. In Exodus 34, 6, he says, actually, he describes himself as Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And in Nehemiah 9, it says, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry, and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. God does not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. 
Jesus is also described as being full of gentleness and love and showing correct anger. I want to look at a story in Jesus' life where he got angry. And it's probably not the one that you're thinking of where he went and flipped the tables in the temple. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Mark 3. And notice just how different this story is from my own stories of anger. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, Come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot to kill Jesus. Jesus was angered by their injustice and their wanting to keep a man from being healed just to follow their own man-made additional rules to the Sabbath. The Pharisees didn't care about the man or his struggles and by doing so they actually violated the number one and number two commandment in the Bible which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit and love your neighbor as yourself. Their hearts were not moved to anger at the injustice they saw in the man's withered hand, but they were instead angry at Jesus for healing them. Jesus didn't react in anger towards the Pharisees because his target was the justice and healing that was needed for the man. He acted with a calm, gentle, yet commanding spirit when he healed the man. Jesus had mastered his anger rather than being mastered by it. Righteous, biblical, Jesus-like anger is always rooted in love and has justice as its target. Wrathful anger is always out for self-preservation and fighting for what we think we deserve. It's often fearful and rooted in pride, like so many of our other vices. Wrathful anger worries about being found out, and it tells us to trust only in ourselves instead of trusting in God. So what do we do now? If you know me, you know that I like to have practical things to do. I'm a doer. So I'm going to give you some practical things that we can do to assess our anger, to bring it to the Holy Spirit, and that will help us take steps of faith to look more Christ-like every day. But I want to make sure that we all realize that the vice of wrath or anger, like all of our other vices, isn't able to be, up, to be uprooted from our lives just by doing A, B, C, or D in our own power. 
We need to allow the Holy Spirit to look into our lives and start to excavate the real issues and not just the symptoms of our anger. So, with that in mind, here's some antidotes to anger. If you are not sure anger is a vice that you struggle with, I want you to keep an anger list. And this list is what it sounds like. For a week, I want you to write down every time you get angry, and I want you to write down what the target of your anger was, and on a scale of one to five, how angry were you? So whether it was a real little itty bitty thing you got angry about or something really big that happened, just write it down. Don't judge what you're doing, just write it down. At the end of the week, or maybe give yourself a few days, look back at it and see how, what were your anger triggers, how angry were you, and how does it line up with Jesus? Or, and this one's only if you're feeling really brave, I want you to ask a family member or a close friend what you are angry about. And here's the key. You then have to try not to get defensive or angry when they tell you. You're going to listen for patterns and you're going to discern. Are you angry about what you think you're angry about? Another one is then pray and spend some time in silence or solitude or other spiritual disciplines. Ask God to show you what's in your heart. If you're not sure what spiritual discipline you want to get started with, I encourage you to check out our Next Steps page on our website. It's got some great ideas and some recommendations of next steps that you can take. And then I would highly, highly recommend talking to a counselor who can give you invariable guidance on your journey. I'm still speaking with mine five years later, a little less frequently, but definitely she is a huge help in my walk with Christ. As much as I wish it were possible, it's not possible to fully eradicate sinful anger from our lives, and it's actually not our goal. Our sanctification process, which Jimmy also mentioned last week, is simply the process of us becoming more holy. Or in other words, the process of us taking steps to become more fully formed into the image of Christ. Our sanctification will not be complete until either our death or Jesus' return. But it's not hopeless. I want to leave you with this. While we may wrestle with anger in varying degrees for the rest of our lives, anger should not be the primary mark of our character. Jesus got angry, but the primary mark of his character was gentleness and love and mercy. It reminds me of how the Apostle John says it in his first letter. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because because God's life is in them. We are all sinners. And that's why we needed God's rescue plan in the first place. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus, 
we should no longer be known for our sin. Let us not have our lives be a practice of being angry, but a practice of loving God and others well, and to aim our anger at the right target in the right way. It is possible. During that earlier conversation that I mentioned I had with Joe about today, I was encouraged that after he had some fun recounting his most favorite Angry Becky moments, he ended our conversation by saying, but you know what? You haven't been as angry lately or as short with the kids. Growth is possible and progress happens. It just takes time, effort, and a whole lot of God. Let us pray as Pastor Jimmy comes to lead us in communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you show us the way to be angry and not sin. We thank you that you do not leave us in our sin, but you have given a way for us to be in relationship with you, that you have come to save us, not only from our anger and other vices, but you are restoring us to relationship with you. And Lord, I thank you for every person today who is here or online who has heard this message. And I pray against the devil and all his schemes to try to make us feel like this is not possible for us. Shame wants to tell us that we are our sin. But you tell us we are yours and that we just struggle with sin. Lord, I pray for freedom today. I pray that the things that bind us would be broken and that your Holy Spirit would bring us closer and in step with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. As Becky was walking us through this vice, it was almost like in neon letters when she simply said, and God's anger is always targeted right. It's always at the right direction and aimed in the right place. And it drew me into Isaiah chapter 53, where in verse 4 it says, yet it was our weakness he, they're talking about, a future coming Messiah who we know is Jesus. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles and were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own soul, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole and he was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And we sang earlier that till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The very anger of God was placed on Jesus so that we can stand in his death.
this morning, we celebrate communion together as a, a, a command of Jesus to remember that God's wrath, that our sin has a penalty attached to it, and it is separation from God. And as we approach the table together to uh, drink this cup, to eat this bread, we do so remembering that it is a representation, a reminder together that our sins were covered by the blood of Christ. Whew. It is not a moment we just flippantly do. But God's anger was righteous, was just. And so as we approach the communion table, I would just ask and beg you, please, if you follow Jesus, you are welcome to join us at this table. If you're still figuring out where you stand in your faith, just kick back, hang back. Um, this is something for those who follow Jesus, and no one's going to look at you and be like, oh, that was weird. No. But this moment, if there's sin that's sitting on you that you're carrying, would you take a moment to confess that, to, to put it on to Jesus because he said he can carry that. And when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember the story of Jesus this way. Would you stand with me? Jesus, as we approach this table, we do so in awe of the cross and humbly understanding that without you, Jesus, we would not be able to withstand the wrath of God, but in your perfection, you took that all on yourself because of your love for us. And so as we celebrate this communion together this morning, we lift you high. We say thank you for your love for us, that we are free from wrath and yet brought into this loving relationship. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please feel free to come to the table and don't worry about lines. You can surround the table together. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are still, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, 
Since curse has lost his grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. May you overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit this week. If you would like prayer about anger or anything else today, please come up to our prayer area up front and our elders would be happy to pray for you. If you are online, you can send us an email at prayer at crossbridgecc.org. Have an amazing week, everyone. Thank you.